Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the struggle to act ethically, at least by our own measure, relating to the purchases of both the necessities of life we all need, as well as the more luxury items that get added on top. Sources today include Professor Neal, The Cavernacle, Kunkendaster, Poppy Saw, Pullback, The Gray Area, Wisecrack, and Like Stories of Old, with additional members-only clips from Roundtable and Park Rose Permaculture. So the idea of no ethical consumption under capitalism has its origin in the 90s and the practice of ethical consumerism. The ethical consumer acknowledges that capitalism is exploitative, but that that exploitation exists on a scale. Some companies offer better pay, are less environmentally destructive, and so on. So a $1 chocolate bar made from cocoa harvested by slave wage child laborers is less ethical than a bougie $10 bar made from cocoa harvested at a living wage. But as soon as people started talking about ethical consumerism, it came under fire. Or one, because it is unavoidably classist. Who gets to call themselves an ethical consumer here? In our chocolate example, very few people can afford to buy the $10 bar. The ethical product serves this dual purpose of alleviating the wealthy of their guilt while also shifting blame to the middle and working class who can't afford it. Because if they're not part of the solution, they're part of the problem, right? The philosopher Slavoj Žižek mockingly calls this consumer activism. He criticizes it for reframing problems of inequity and inequality as a problem created by consumers that can only be solved by consumers, both of which are demonstrably wrong. It is highly unlikely that $10 chocolate bar will change anything. Particularly since buying ethical usually happens on such a small scale, it's unlikely to be able to alleviate the harms of capitalism anyway. And so all that the practice of ethical consumerism might actually accomplish is to alleviate the people who participate of their obligation to look deeper and to accomplish actual meaningful change. Because that $10 chocolate bar is not making change, it's more like purchasing indulgences. Which brings us to 2014 and the appearance of the This Is What a Feminist Looks Like t-shirt, which was a collaboration between the feminist organization The Fawcett Society, LUK Magazine, and the fashion brand Whistles. And within weeks of the shirt's debut, it was revealed that this $45 t-shirt was being produced in Mauritius at a factory that paid its workers 62 cents an hour and slept them 16 to a room. It was a huge embarrassment, a PR disaster, the shirts were pulled. But should they have been? Because it was subsequently revealed that those wages were well above average for Mauritius, and the factory had, on the whole, a good reputation. We also have to wrestle with the fact that if we pulled a different shirt out of our closet or bought a different one, it would likely be made in even more exploitative conditions. And doesn't the pro-social message still matter? And this is the moment in which no ethical consumption under capitalism emerges as a slogan and a meme on Tumblr. It didn't mean that because there's no truly ethical form of consumption that you're free to do whatever. Rather, it means that if you are trying to be an ethical consumer, you have to do your homework. If you don't want to fall for corporate ethical consumerist marketing that's actually just pinkwashing or greenwashing, you need to interrogate their claims. And we also have to remember to be kind to ourselves because we might be making the best choice from a range of bad options. Because the consumer isn't the cause of exploitation exploitation or unsustainable practices. Corporation, the whole system of capitalist production, is the problem. I'm not criticizing everyone for being a consumer because it's absolutely impossible 
not to be one. But that does lead to a mindset of this. And I remember this because of the Hogwarts Legacy drama. Buying this video game means you support transphobic values. I say as the metal in my cell phone used to record this was made by child labor. So now it's taken on a meaning of its own where it's just like I said earlier, do whatever you want. Yeah, enriching someone that spreads transphobia is bad. But have you thought about, you know, your phone? How is that made? Do you need your phone? Do you really need your phone? You need a phone in this day and age. You need clothes. You need food. So I'm not going to criticize most people for not really caring where a lot of these come from or not really investigating it. It's more when you get to the consumer products that are pretty needless. Designer clothes made with really exploitative labor, which we're going to talk about. And then even the ideology of materialism, like buying yourself, you know, really fancy cars for like no reason is something personally I would never do. And I always think about if I won the lottery, I would just buy a house where I live and live in it. I'd probably either fix my car or I'd buy like a modest one. Like I said, I try my best to live with my values, but it's impossible in consumer capitalism because we all have to compromise because there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. That doesn't mean we all have to be rabid materialists and just buy stuff for the sake of it and not feel bad and feed into this global system. I don't know about you, but to me, it's important to live my values. So I didn't buy Hogwarts Legacy. I won't play that game. I've had Raid Shadow Legends reach out to me for a sponsorship. It's an Israeli company. I said, no, I'm not going to buy Israeli product. And I know me as an individual, that's not going to change anything really. But I'm doing it because I want to ethically consume as much as possible. If there's something I really don't agree with, then I'm going to do that, right? Just to feel better. I don't want to partake in this system. I don't want to be complicit. I don't think everything in your life has to be about changing the world. I think sometimes it is what makes you feel better about yourself and how you live your values. And as left-wing people, I think more people should not be materialist. And I think more people should kind of reject consumer capitalism as much as possible. But now we're going to get into Hassan. So a lot of left-wing people absolutely hate Hassan. I don't personally hate him, but I do think sometimes his response to criticism is really bad. He's explained why, because he feels like so much of it is bad faith. Now, lots of people meme on him and make fun of him, especially right-wing people, because they're like, well, this is the king of the socialists. The king of the socialists who spends $1,000 on a Gucci shirt he'll wear once and buys a car for $200,000 or you know, pays $140,000 and is paying the rest off later and stuff and i know this is old drama now but i want to go through it and i want to just let hassan kind of explain himself and then just talk about like how as leftists we should even feel about someone like this who clearly does good work in a lot of ways educates people in a lot of ways like recently had like low overruled on explaining about prison abolition like you can't say hassan is doing damage and maybe you can say even the aesthetic is appealing to people because he seems like a normal like rich celebrity but then I'm going to get into some of the criticisms as well. And we'll look at him responding to the backlash for his shirt and for the car. Twitch streamer Hassan came under fire after he wore a $1,000 outfit at Coachella, which critics argued went against his socialist views. He hit back saying it's wild how he's been made the villain in this dispute. So let's have a look at him respond to the shirt and the car. Like, look at this. She literally said, Hassan bad. My outfit good. I'm a better leftist. 67, 68,000 likes. I know where it, it comes from with right-wingers. Like, oh, socialism is when no money. Socialism is a poverty cult. Socialism is a poverty cult. Dude, I, I never said I don't like luxury shit, okay? I mean, the shirt was... 
not a, a good purchase regardless. When I am a normie-facing leftist content creator, perhaps the only one who is not a weirdo. I'm just a normal dude. So all of the abnormal weirdos that are permanently online are like, he's not behaving in the way that we would want. The idea that you're a good leftist or a bad leftist revolves around like how you spend your money is so stupid. People think you're just a performative socialist. I don't, but that's okay, fine. Like who cares? Yeah, I'm a fake. I'm not real. I'm not a socialist. I'm a capitalist. Okay, I love capitalism. Num, 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 num. The reason why I got Gucci shirt, which is incredibly expensive and, and felt disgusting. Not that it matters. I can buy whatever the I want and anyone that gets mad at that can suck me from the back so i was like i i want to get something i want to get something nice okay i want to get something nice we're at coachella this is gonna be douchey every celebrity every famous person everyone that has a decent amount of money at some point has worn gucci with not a single person getting mad at them so i went and i bought this shirt and the shirt is very expensive but that was the reasoning behind it in the grand scheme of things 200k isn't even that much no it's a lot of money man you're crazy like don't be this person either, okay? Like, don't be the type of oh, person shit. who's like saying 200K isn't that much. Of course, it's a lot of money. It's not $200,000. It's like the, the car itself is $140,000, okay? Like, if we're talking about actual numbers, it's a f load of money, man. Are you crazy? Most people don't make that kind of money in a year. Are you insane? Of course, it's a lot of money. No, it, it is. It is. It is a lot of money. They, like, don't be delusional, you know? That, of course. It is totally totally uh, uh, an abundant purchase it's a luxury car i'm 30 years old you know i don't want to i don't want to be be like a 50 year old guy and then finally be like you know what i'm gonna have a nice car now like eh, no no matter what i got the uh, people were gonna be mad for example if i were to have bought a cheaper car if i were to have gone with another toyota they were gonna say i'm larping as a poor person like i'm larping uh and and larping as a poor and trying to make it seem like I'm a poor person to be more relatable. So do I hate Hassan for buying a 1K Gucci shirt and a 200K car? No. Would I do that if I was him? Like, would I feel comfortable doing that? No, as well. So I want to talk about that because I've outlined how I'm not materialistic. I would never spend that amount of money on anything, even if I was as rich as him. But it is a guy who seems to like the life of celebrity and wealth. And it's not a guy who is socialist because he hates consumer capitalism. He very much enjoys consumer capitalism more than most of us do because he's allowed to. And you guys can ask yourself, if you were that rich, would you do what he does? I personally wouldn't. But a lot of you might say, hell yeah, I would buy like a loads of cars. I would spend all that money and I would flex all the time, which is fine. He made a good point as well in a tweet afterwards. He says like Markiplier has this reputation as being an amazing guy, way wealthier than me, and no one ever criticizes him. But I can see both sides, really, because there's been lots of socialists throughout history, communist revolutionaries, who have come from like wealthy backgrounds. And sometimes you need that because they need to be removed from everything so they can actually write the political theory. Like, Karl Marx was bankrolled by Engels, who was a very wealthy man, right? If I'm going to give fair criticism to Hassan, I respect a lot of the good work he does. I respect a lot of the people he has on his stream. I respect a lot of the ways he teaches his audience about things. Out of all the political Twitch streamers, I would say he's actually one of the best who has politics that fit in more with my own. But like I was saying earlier, I still think if you are like an actual socialist who wants socialism on the path to communism, don't know if he does, then I think you still have to kind of like live your morals. Like we all have hypocrisies here and there. Like a 200k car, and I know he jokingly flexed it and stuff, but when loads of your audience are just like young working class people 
and you're teaching them this theory and then you're buying very material things and kind of like showing them off like a 1k shirt you're never going to wear again I don't think it's personally like the worst thing ever, but it just speaks to your worldview. And that's why people might have a problem with it. Like I said, Hassan, net benefit, net positive. But my main problem is, is if this is what you're teaching people, there's a limit in how they will reimagine society. And that's what we actually have to do as left-wing people. When people bring up this debate, the art versus artist question, I think they expect it to end with a yes or no answer. And that might be why this debate is still ongoing and remains unresolved. I strongly believe that there's no universal answer and it does depend on the artist in question. Because art does not follow any universal codes, associating artists with that art probably is not going to be so cut and dry and will be similarly challenging. Dr. Seuss wrote some charming-ass children's books, but he also drew insanely racist caricatures. I think it's totally fair to judge this Seuss guy as a person, but because his books have an audience of children still with their baby teeth, I don't know if it's fair to remove all of his books from the library just because of his negative views of people. When the movie Baby Driver came out, the editing and the camera work blew me away and it instantly became one of my favorite movies. And now I can't watch it. Like, it has two despicable humans in it who I can't support. And the editing and camera work of this movie haven't changed. It's still something I love, but I personally can't look past the inclusion of these actors. So I don't want to watch this movie anymore. And it is very important to acknowledge that when we engage with any kind of Harry Potter media, we are still paying money to J.K. Rowling because she is still so financially relevant in this franchise. We can't exactly separate the art from the artist if that artist is still pulling in revenue from the art if we support it, whether or not we agree with her position. Basically, art versus the artist comes down to a personal choice because association is something that our brains do on a personal level. I really do think it's about what we as individuals decide, right? What line do we draw? What can we excuse? And do we want to engage with this media despite knowing that the author is still benefiting from it. So what does this mean for us as people? Like, what can we do about this media franchise that has corrupted itself to the point that it's at? This is when the topic of boycotts come in. Like, would it do anything if we decided to withhold supporting this game or this movie? And would it do anything? Like, is it going to affect the corporation behind it? And the answer is yes. Of course it would. Boycotts are famous for working because they withhold financial reward from companies when they pull stuff like this. And these corporations care a lot about money. Like, we are just walking, talking wallets to them. But there are a lot of talking points in place in order to discourage us from even thinking about boycotts, and let alone if they might work. Critics will argue that we have to watch this movie in order to support gay representation, and gamers will say that we have to buy this game in order to support the developers that worked so hard on it. As for the movie side of things, there are 
tons of amazing movies with gay representation in it nowadays. I think Hollywood and other movie studios know that there's a good audience for that. And if Fantastic Critters and Where to Catch Them flops, I'm pretty sure they're going to know it had something to do with J.K. Rowling and not so much to do with Dumbledore having two lines about being gay. And for the gaming side of things, I wish that game developers got paid based on units sold. But if they did, I think the gaming industry would be a lot more lucrative than it is right now. The developers got paid way before this game is ever going to hit the shelves, and they're probably already moved on to their next project. So crying about how not buying the Goblin game is going to hurt like the people at their desks working at this job... That's not true, and we shouldn't even listen to that point. Vote with your wallets is kind of a cheesy saying, but at the end of the day, I think there is a lot of power that goes behind what we financially decide to support. There is evidence that the studios are listening to crowd reactions, and we might actually have the power to impact some change, depending on whether or not we support these things. And if boycotting is how we do that, I think it's necessary to consider that as a legitimate option. So if you are serious about standing up to JK's actions and supporting the trans people who are affected by her negative rhetoric, don't watch Fantastic Beasts 3. Don't buy Hogwarts Legacy. Don't even buy Lego Harry Potter, because supporting anything tied to this franchise is paying JK Rowling and giving off the idea that we want more of this franchise that is rooted in bigotry. I don't know how many times I have to say that. It sucks, but it's true. And I promise I'm not here to tell you what and what not to like. You can still like parts of the Harry Potter franchise. I still do. I, like, grew up on this stuff, and I do like parts of it still, even now, but it's just hard for me to ever think about that without associating it to Joanne's legacy. Hey, remember those Survivor's Guilt skeleton horses? That was a pretty interesting concept. Oh, yeah, Joanne's a bigot. My favorite movies are the third and fourth ones because all the actors are awkward and gangly, and I think that's pretty funny. Oh, yeah, Joanne's a bigot. Hogwarts would definitely be shut down in real life. Like, you got a monster dog on the third floor, a spider in the forest, a tree that kills people, a snake in the pipes. No 11-year-old should have been admitted to that school as a death sentence. Oh, and also, Joanne's a bigot. But now is the time where I stop making this silly little video and you get to decide what you're going to do moving forward. Are you going to buy the Harry Potter game and play it in secret? Or are you going to watch this movie and then fight with people on Twitter about how good it was? I don't know. It's up to you now. Like, I've done my part in giving you the information, but now you get to decide how you're going to move forward knowing what I've told you. And it is an option for you to engage with Harry Potter and just not tell anybody. Like, if you catch the movie on live TV and you just want to sit through it without judgment, you can. And on the other side of the spectrum, you can try to ratio JK Rowling online, and that's another option you could try. And at the end of the day, that part is not up to me. Like, I've decided how I'm going to carry forward, and you get to make your own decision about that as well. It just... I would consider everything behind what you're going to do in regards to supporting or not supporting this franchise.
really have an issue with the phrase, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism, because it isn't true. Ethics is not about making perfect choices that cause no harm. Ethics is about how we make decisions in an imperfect world in which it is impossible to do no harm, or at least impossible to do no harm 100% of the time. Ethics is also not just about the decisions that we make in the moment, but about what we do surrounding those decisions, what we do before and after, how we change when we have more power and more choice. So it's untrue to say there is no ethical consumption under capitalism, which by the way, so many people use as an excuse to just like not care about the impact their choices have on other people. There is no perfectly harmless consumption under capitalism. That is true. But there are absolutely ways that we can make ethical choices regardless of the systems that we're in. Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. I've been listening to an audiobook called How to Be Perfect. It's by the guy that wrote The Good Place. I finished it. It's so good. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm still working my way through it. But one of the things I really like about that book is he talks about inquiry as a really important moral act. So the mere fact that you're asking questions and trying to know more about consumption decisions, I mean, he's not framing it as consumption decisions. He's framing it as like all moral actions, but that that has some kind of value to it. And I think that sort of notion of ethical consumption as a gateway that you're talking about, that inquiry is a huge part of that, right? You Maybe you start at this realization that you know Cadbury or Nestle has some issues. Maybe that prompts you to look into sugar and you're like, holy shit, sugar has a fucked up history. <laughs> but maybe like our friend Lex did, you stop eating sugar for a week <laughs> until you realize that's not feasible and you start to ask some more questions. So I think that's the kind of journey that ethical consumption can ideally take people on. But I do think there's something to this notion that capitalism presents ethical consumption basically as an avenue for buying your way out of moral dilemmas, right? So that's where we get some of the problematic versions of it, like eating humane meat or purchasing carbon offsets for a flight, right? They're really like indulgences that are only accessible to people who have more money. And obviously, these actions can't fix big structural problems like climate change. <laughs> um, and the problem with that, then, is we, we see this sort of limited version of ethical consumption. And then that then leaves us feeling disempowered because we've tried it. We've realized we can't disengage from sugar. We've realized that carbon offsets are bullshit. We've realized that humane meat isn't a real solution. And that more broadly, um, ethical consumption is expensive, it's transactional, and it's not really effective. And then that leaves us all feeling like, well, if I can't be perfect, why should I try it all? Yeah. Um, and that's like a really shitty place to be. But I, I think that sort of misses the broader point of ethical consumption, right? So it's not about middle-class white influencers who are hawking boutique health products. That's like the worst <laughs> version of ethical consumption. It's about finding new avenues to meet our needs and pulling back yeah. that podcast name. <laughs> you said the name of the thing and the thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and pulling back from exploitative practices as much as we can. So Marxists actually call this alternative praxis, um, but basically it just means finding ways to do things differently. That's what I really like about ethical consumption is that it's people trying a bunch of different ways to 
extricate ourselves from capitalism. And that's an incredibly valuable thing. Just to give you some examples in case you're still a skeptic, right? There are lots of ways that ethical consumption gives us tools for combating late-stage capitalism through solidaristic relationships instead of, um, you know, exchange ones, right? So we've got mutual aid movements, we've got community swaps and things like that. There's also, you know, freeganism, which is for sure more of a fringe movement. Not everybody's going to become a dumpster diver. I'm definitely not going to be. One and done for us. (laughs) One and done for us. You know, there's the waste-free movement. Um, is it perfect? No, but it advocates for circularity rather than like the take-make-waste approach that we typically have. The Eat Local movement is all about connection to community and the way that food is made, right? And then veganism, um, you know, problematic for sure, but has made incredible progress in showing people that animal protein isn't necessary to be strong or healthy. But it's not an either or, right? You can be for collective action while also trying to consume as ethically as possible. Just ask any vegan activist you've ever met, right? (laughs) (laughs) Ethical consumption for me anyway, it doesn't stand apart from political action, but it's actually part of political action. And it and its associated movements show what is possible. It shows that alternative praxis, in other words. Yeah. And I think I'm glad you brought up the book, um, How to Be Perfect, because that is just a really approachable book. Like it's a very easy read and it kind of like sums up a lot of really cool ideas. So if people do like ethics, like Kristen and I do, <laughs> it's it's a really cool book to like kind of like goes over this idea that you're not going to be perfect. Right. And so you can't let that stop you from still trying to be better. And this doesn't just apply to, you know, being a consumer. It applies to creative endeavors and relationships and parenting. And the idea that we all have to be perfect is so toxic. And it stops us from just being our best selves. Like our best selves won't ever be perfect. Flaws are also part of what makes you like a wonderful, interesting person and what allows you to learn and be better. I try to look at my own flaws and consider what I like about them and what I don't like about them and aim to be like the best version of my flawed self that like I can be. I'm loud. I interrupt people, but I also am like a really engaged listener who loves to have an interesting dialogue and I love to ask questions. And I love that about myself. And there are ways to recognize what I love and to think of ways to grow those parts. What did we say in the very first episode? Don't let you know, perfect be the enemy of good. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is like, like it or not, we are all, every single one of us consumers. So what's the alternative to ethical consumption? Unethical (laughs) consumption, you know? (laughs) Yes, exactly. And I think when people disregard it as a movement, they're really alienating people who could be stepping in to be allies. And I think that's something that like the left really struggles with is alienating each other. It sounds like, Kyla, you might be leaning towards real. I'm going to say real for this one, uh, but ethical consumption, real solution or false solution? Yeah, I think it's a real solution. I think people need to be more considerate of what it is and what it is not. And I think that's true of both people on the far left who are already like, you know, hardcore activists or living in the woods. And I think that's true of people who are on the far right who also would agree that maybe we should have a planet that is habitable. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, One of the really horrifying things that I learned at some point a couple of years ago 
is that like a lot of like far right racist movements have like their own version of fair trade labels, which Ew. blew oh, my mind. Ew. But <laughs> I think it like it's an idea that can fit into different ideologies and obviously like problematically applied in a lot of cases. <laughs> Well, and I think a lot of it is like who who controls the narrative right now, right? And I think a lot of it is like when H&M slaps a giant green, you know, window pane up that has like leaves on it and it's like, come shop here to save the planet. And that's not a solution at all and should be illegal. And I think there was actually a case about greenwashing this year that has gone to court. So hopefully that is a thing that we see more of in the future. Just, you know, you can't just slap a green label on something and be like, we're natural, which I actually have something to talk about that in a, in a minute too. But I also feel like we need to really disengage from like transactional relationships and not just within, you know, exchange of money and our buying and selling capabilities, but like within our relationships with each other. I think because we all grew up in this capitalist system, you know, I was raised in a family that was very transactional. Uh, A lot of our generation was. The post-World War II rise of the boomer middle class in, you know, American identity politics, you know, every person for themselves, it's so pervasive that now I'm trying to recognize that mentality of like, what I can give you to get what I want from you is like not a good way to be, but it's also like the whole society we live in. And so recognizing that is hard to do and something that I think is really important for people to start doing. It seems to me that when we talk about morality this way, we end up having a word that can mean a bunch of different things. This idea of, because my background is in politics, the idea of the rules you would need to build a workable, decent society and the rules you want to follow or the approach you want to take to being a good person. I recently had Peter Singer on the show who, um, Mike, I know you wrote the forward to the new edition of A Life You Can Save yeah. or The Life You Can Save. And something I found really striking about that book is it has it has a version of both of these ideas in it. So the initial thought experiment, what do you do if you're walking by the pond and you see a child drowning and you're in your nicest suit? If you just keep following the logic of that, and it is powerful logic, Mm -hmm. it never stops. And he basically admits that. It doesn't stop until you're essentially risking your own life or that of your families to save others. And on the other hand, at some point, he basically makes a tactical concession and says, well, look, if everybody making a lot of money would just donate 5% of it, the world would be a lot better place. We wouldn't have extreme poverty. So at least maybe we can all agree on that rule. And when I had him on the show, I was trying to get him to to distinguish between this a little bit. And I think for tactical reasons, he was a little loath to do so, right? That if you're, you're going to turn people off if you tell them the only way to be decent is to basically annihilate their self and their partiality to those closest to them to, to, to be a good person. But nevertheless, he seemed like very different questions to me. This question of what do you need to just be a participant in a good participant in a community? And what does it actually mean to be living a good life? Um, that we're somehow trying to answer in the same words. Yeah, I mean, that is, the, uh, Singer is fascinating to me. And um, I wrote the foreword to that, to the 10th anniversary edition of that. And the the point of the foreword is basically to say that we, when you read this book, you're going to read a lot of insane things, right? You're going to read a story about a guy who um, calculated that the odds of dying from only having one kidney are one in 4,000. 
And then he said, well, that means if I don't give away one of my kidneys to someone who needs it, that I'm valuing my own life 4,000 times greater than the life of a random stranger who's not me. And that's absurd. And he went into a hospital and said, I want to give away a kidney. And the, the hospital said, to whom? And he said, I don't know, whoever needs it. And they had no protocol for this. The hospital had never <laughs> experienced a person who wanted to give a kidney to someone like it was to anyone. Right. <laughs> and um, and the the point of the forward that I wrote was you're going to read that story and you're going to have a lot of feelings. I think um, it's not just thoughts with Singer. I, I, th I think the thing that's so interesting about Singer is his writing causes me to have feelings that I don't have when I read other moral philosophy, because the feelings you have are things like shame and embarrassment and, um, and fear. Uh, like, is this the only way to be a good person? I have to walk into a hospital tomorrow and offer up a kidney. Like uh, that's a terrifying idea. Right. But the reason that I really like him and the reason that I think he serves a really valuable, um, uh, it does a really valuable thing in our society is he shakes you out of complacency. Like you, it's very easy to get complacent, I think, in America, even if you're living a life of, um, any life of even relative comfort in America puts you at the very top of the heap, right? Like uh, compared to people in the world. And, um, it's very easy to get complacent. If you have an air conditioner and a, and a TV and electricity and clean water, you're in the, you know, the top 5% of comfort of all human beings on earth. And it's, so it's very easy to kind so of, nothing of all human beings in history. That's right. Yes. Um, in fact, one of the things I wrote about was like, you know, if you are in that situation right now in America, where you have a roof over your head, air conditioning, um, a stove, a refrigerator, clean water, um, electricity, cable TV, whatever, the, the sort of things we think of as basic utilities. Your life is better than Louis Couture's. Like you're by far, like Louis, Louis Couture's that if you ever go to Versailles, my wife and I went to Versailles for our 10th anniversary. And uh, it's, you know, it's obviously an insane thing to walk through that, that building. But then you're like, well, yeah, they had no running water and it, everything was stunk and everybody had terrible bo because there wasn't <laughs> we didn't have any deodorant right and it's like there there are aspects of the daily life in america even at a moderate income level that that make you better your life is better than kings and queens from years past right so singer's purpose to me is to constantly shake you out of complacency and to remind you that people in other parts of the world are not less valuable intrinsically than people that are next door to you that's an incredibly valuable service he's providing, I think. And you don't have to give up a kidney to live by the tenets of Peter Singer's writing, I don't think. I think you just have to, in my mind, you have to just internalize what he's saying and and understand the truth of it. And it, like you said, it's very compelling. It's incredibly compelling writing to me. And it forces you out of this ability that you have that's that's provided to us here in america in 2019 to utterly forget about the rest of the world um his particular philosophy is not my particular philosophy i would say but i i really enjoy reading what he writes because it constantly shifts and changes my outlook on the world in a way that i would not otherwise maybe have be shifted or changed so interestingly when I teach scandalous contractualism, a, a key quote from the original 1982 article that he wrote about it is about Peter Singer. Really? Yeah. And, and exactly this point about how it makes you have feelings, as you just put. So the quote is something like, when I read Peter Singer's article about famine, in addition to the thought about how much good I could do to people in these countries, uh, there's the further seemingly distinct thought 
that it would be wrong not to aid them when I could do so at so little cost to myself. So in addition to the thought about how much good I could do, that's the utilitarian thought, Scanlon says, I have this further seemingly distinct thought or feeling right. <laughs> that, that it would be wrong. And, and then Scanlon, that's the starting point for his reflections about what is that distinct thought. It's not just that I could do more good. There's something else there. And then what he lands on is this contractualism. What he lands on is this claim about community or about living together on minimally respectful terms, which then, as Ezra was pointing out, gets um, complicated by the idea of a global community. It's like we're not built for that scale <laughs> to, to, to take in ethically. Ethics is a real discussion of competing conceptions of the good. Why, yes, Oscar, that's more or less it. And for most ethical theories, the point is to both be able to deduce what the good is, i.e. how we know what's ethical, and then figure out how to do it, i.e. how to be ethical. Now, we can start with figuring out if one can be ethical under capitalism by judging three primary schools of ethics. First, we have virtue ethics associated with Aristotle. It argues that to be ethical, we first got to develop virtuous moral character marked by things like courage, loyalty, and wisdom, and then do moral things which further reinforce moral character. It's sort of like how if you want to start getting up earlier, you force yourself to do it for a few weeks and it sucks really bad, but eventually you get used to it and then you pop out of bed rested without an alarm and ready to create surplus capital for your boss. For Aristotle, the virtuous person's actions will always be oriented towards some type of moral good, i.e. you wake up earlier to exercise or meditate or get to work. And importantly, virtuous character is marked by a spirit of moderation, i.e. with money, you shouldn't be too greedy or too frugal. This emphasis makes virtue ethics feel incompatible with capitalism, whose logic necessitates a lack of moderation in service of constant economic growth. After all, Ronald Reagan didn't call for moderate growth, saying instead that there are no such things as limits to growth because there are no limits to the human capacity for intelligence, imagination, and wonder. Next, we have deontology associated with Immanuel Kant. Deontology's clearest articulation is Kant's categorical imperative. Act as if the maxims of your action were to become through your will a universal law of nature. This means that every moral decision should be based on the idea that you would want your action to be a universal moral law. For example, only lie if you think it's always good to lie. Kant also thought that the moral value of an action depended on the intent behind it and not its outcome. Or consequence. This logic plays into an accompanying formula for deontology, Kant's principle of humanity, which states that we should act in such a way that you treat humanity, whether in your own person or in the person of any other, never merely as a means to an end, but always at the same time as an end. In other words, if you're treating another person as a means to an end, you're not being ethical. So is deontology compatible with the C word? Oh, come on. You know that I meant capitalism. You know that that's what I meant. Well, a hardcore Ayn Rand acolyte could do capitalism and feel like they are in line with the categorical imperative because they want everyone else to be doing capitalism too. But it's complicated when we bring in the principle of humanity as it's hard to imagine both being good at capitalism and treating people as ends in themselves. For example, how could you justify laying off a bunch of employees for the sake of increasing profit if you also think you're being ethical in deontological terms. Finally, we have consequentialism, the idea that we can best judge the ethics of an action by its consequences. If for Kant, intent matters more than outcome, for consequentialist, outcome matters more than intent. Consequentialism operates by establishing what results are deemed 
good or desirable, and then evaluates actions on their ability to arrive at these results. So if I'm thinking of lying or donating to charity, or helping a friend move, I will consider what to do on the basis of what will come of each of those actions. Consequentialism has a tricky relationship to capitalism as it's easy to use and ends justifies the means logic here, which means that technically, if the machinations of the capitalist market help provide the funds to do good stuff, then why not? And this is all very much in line with Silicon Valley nonprofit culture, often referred to as the California ideology. So if you're a Bill Gates type, you can make potentially ruthless business decisions as long as it provides you with the surplus capital to buy vaccines for the developing world. Sometimes the talking ethics can feel a bit speculative, as so many of the examples are abstract. So let's look at the way in which various political and social philosophies are actively trying to change the world for the better. There's a lot of different ways to do this, but I'm going to focus on three. Revolution, accelerationism, and long-termism. Revolutionary philosophers usually share a common point of orientation in the French Revolution, an 18th century French event that ended up shaping lots of 19th century German philosophy. In case you forgot, the basic gist is that under the French monarchy, economic and social inequality were terrible. And rather than politely asking them to fix stuff, the people took over and established a new system of government grounded in the principles of liberty, equality, and brotherhood. This also helped inspire the age of revolution in 18th century Europe. And this exact exemplifies the basic logic of revolution. If a system isn't working for a majority of people, then it needs to be fundamentally upended and replaced. Sometimes non-violently, sometimes violent. For most contemporary philosophers sympathetic to revolution, the logic of capitalism fundamentally contradicts the egalitarian pursuits embodied by the 18th century revolutions, and maybe most importantly, the Haitian revolutions. So for them, the only way to build a more ethical society is to get rid of capitalism. Accelerationism is a post-revolutionary political philosophy that argues that the best way to change the world isn't to just destroy capitalism, but rather to actively accelerate capitalism and technological development. Because again, there is no outside of capitalism from which to resist. For thinkers on the left wing of this movement, accelerating technological development leads to egalitarian and liberatory innovations and practices like automation and universal basic income. According to the Accelerate Manifesto, accelerationists want to unleash latent productive forces. The material platform of neoliberalism does not need to be destroyed. It needs to be repurposed towards common ends. The existing infrastructure is not a capitalist stage to be smashed, but a springboard to launch towards towards post-capitalism. It's sort of like, rather than destroying the Death Star, we're talking about accelerating the technological forces of the Empire to use them to move beyond it towards something better and hopefully more Jedi-friendly. It's also worth noting that there's a right-wing side to this movement. For more on all of this, you can check out our video on automation where we talk about contemporary accelerationism at length. Finally, we have long-termism, which is an outgrowth of effective altruism, and it's a contemporary brand of consequentialist thought focused on changing the world, not so much in the here and now, but for creating better conditions for future humans. An ungenerous reading of long-termism was recently given by David Z. Morris, who called it another excuse for mercenary corner-cutting today so long as you commit your loot to improving tomorrow. A more generous description offered by Dylan Matthews is that long Long-termism is the argument that because so many more humans and other intelligent beings could live in the future than live today, the most important thing for altruistic people to do in the present moment is to ensure that the future comes to be at all by preventing existential risks and that it's as good as possible. As when I drive by unhoused people these days giving them nothing, I scream at them, but I'm making things better for people in a thousand years. And they say, oh, thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. And to be clear, the phrase other intelligent beings is intentional as long-termists are concerned with making conditions good for future AI as well. So back to our main question, 
Can we be ethical under capitalism? Is only revolution going to change things or can well-intentioned Silicon Valley geniuses use their bags of money to save us? And is there any hope of things getting better within this system? For the revolutionaries, capitalism itself is fundamentally unethical and those trying to use it for ethical means are like people trying to use condoms to get pregnant. Because the system is morally flawed, the onus is on individuals to foster ethical commitments counter to the dominant system while acknowledging that no one could be held responsible for pure morality under capitalism. For example, you can be against the fossil fuel industry and its effects on the climate, but you're not a bad person if you still have to drive to work. But it is also worth noting that doing a revolution is pretty hard and often gets really messy, so don't try one before consulting your local political philosopher. Many academic studies of society distinguish between three dimensions, the market, the state, and civil society. In an ideal society, these three are well-developed and in balance with one another, meaning that a civilian with good intentions could act within that society and ensure good outcomes. In 1534, Douglas Weingar of Hawkehurst, England, gave his grandmother roses for her birthday. He picked them himself, walked them over to her. She was happy. Boom, 145 points. So what has changed? While there's no one definitive answer to this, and our modern society is obviously shaped by countless of interrelated developments, for the purpose of this video, a good starting point is the treadmill of production theory, which was presented by sociologist Alan Snyberg in 1980 to address why environmental degradation in the West had increased so rapidly after World War II. The treadmill of production is in essence an economic change theory about Western economies accumulating capital in a seemingly insatiable quest for more profits. This, of course, had social and environmental consequences as more resources were extracted to meet higher levels of demand, toxic output was released into the environment, and workers became replaced either by new technologies or by cheaper labor forces as production shifted towards the global south. Snyberg thus painted the picture of a society running in a treadmill without really moving forward. With each round of investments, profits were increased and consumer products became more accessible, but the social and environmental consequences became vastly more complicated, therefore making it more difficult for individuals to estimate the moral implications of engaging with the market, which is an issue that The Good Place frequently emphasizes. But every time I do something nice, it backfires. There are so many unintended consequences to well-intentioned actions. It feels like a game you can't win. I brought blueberry muffins. Oh, no, you shouldn't eat blueberries anymore. I read an article, the migrant workers who pick them are horribly mistreated. For a long time, the state facilitated this expansion as the dominant neoliberal ideology of the time argued that economic growth was the only path for social progress, and that more modernization would eventually iron out any negative side effects. Even when the limits to growth became more evident, governments were still either unwilling or, because of the size and transnational nature of the market, incapable of stepping in. As a result, the burden of responsibility increasingly shifted towards civil society, towards the consumer. 
And this is where we find ourselves today, having to consciously consider what we once took for granted and having to educate ourselves on what were once unambiguous decisions. Humans think that they're making one choice, but they're actually making dozens of choices they don't even know they're making. Sociologist Ulrich Beck also talked about a growing focus on what he calls the sub-political level, where the pursuit of morality is not done through traditional politics, but through personal lifestyle. According to Beck, this movement is not a choice, but a fate, the result of a neoliberal society that assumes individuals as independent, self-reliant actors who have the capacity to master the whole of their lives on their own. Your big revelation is life is complicated? That's not a revelation. That's a divorced woman's throw pillow. You don't want the consequences? Do the research. Buy another tomato. What else you got? This perspective, however, doesn't seem completely fair, for it places a responsibility on individuals that they are bound to fall short of. Hello. Hello. Hope we have the right house. I'm looking for a Doug Forsett. The Good Place shows this through a character named Doug, as a result of trying to carry the weight of the world on his own shoulders. Doug lives a life of almost ridiculous levels of self-sacrifice. I volunteer to test cosmetics for a local company so they don't have to test on animals. It's fun huh. for the animals who don't have to do it. Leading to the conclusion that this cannot be the right path to get to the good place. Michael, face facts. Doug is not the blueprint of how to live a good life. But the real issue is not Doug's lifestyle. It is the premise that we have to do it all on our own. For not only does it tend to absolve the market and state of their responsibility to change, but it also reinforces the idea that true moral behavior cannot be achieved as any attempts from individuals to act morally will inevitably lead to some degree of hypocrisy, therefore making it a lot more enticing to just care about nothing at all. There's bad stuff everywhere, man. It's impossible to avoid. Yeah, but... Well, shouldn't we just try? Shouldn't we just try to do the right thing whenever we can? Why? It's so much harder to live like that, and it's not like someone's keeping score. Ulrich Beck also criticizes this perspective for conflicting with the reality of our everyday experiences in which we are not independent, but in which we are enabled and constrained by our environment, by other people, and by countless other factors affecting our ability to take moral action. And this is what I believe The Good Place is really trying to tell us. Whatever hope there is for achieving morality in our modern society, it is not dependent on what we can do alone, but on what we can do together. It may not provide all the answers to our structural issues, but at the very least it does suggest that the road to the good place is not found in one person becoming an absolute moral being, but in multiple people working together, each with their own individual qualities. The good place shows us such qualities with Chidi's conscience, Michael's efforts towards empathy, Tahani's care for the community, Jason's kindness and loyalty, Janet's wisdom and curiosity, and Eleanor's will to act. And while the show's story is not over yet, I think that ultimately The Good Place wants to reject the notion that we should be judged and given points based on our individual actions, to instead advocate a focus on our relations to others, on how we can help each other become better, and in that process, elevate ourselves as well. Why choose to be good every day if there is no guaranteed reward we can count on now or in the afterlife? I argue that we choose to be good because of our bonds with other people and our innate desire to treat them with dignity. At the intersection of empathy, 
and ethics is the realization that we are not in this alone. We've just heard clips today, starting with Professor Neil on TikTok explaining the origins of the phrase, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. The Cavernacle looked at the case of progressive commentator Hassan Piker to analyze the ethics of consumption. Kunkin Daster explored the ethics of engaging with the Harry Potter universe. Poppy Saw on TikTok gave a nuanced alternate take on the possibility of acting ethically under capitalism. Pullback warned against letting the perfect be the enemy of the good and explained other nuances of conscious consumerism. The gray area examined some of the moral philosophy of the good place. Wisecrack explored the question of whether ethical capitalism is even possible. And, like stories of old, dove deeper into some of the moral questions asked and answered in The Good Place. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Roundtable having a fittingly Roundtable discussion about conscious consumerism. You can go and buy on the high street now a t-shirt for £5 that's made of cotton. Well, a farmer somewhere has grown that cotton someone has sewn that t-shirt. But the system is set up that actually the people that pay the price aren't the consumer, they're the people at the other end. So the exploitation in the supply chains is causing cheap products to be made as a result of exploitation. And as consumers, we don't know where to go with that. And Park Rose Permaculture told an individual story about how even our best efforts to consume ethically can be thwarted. I am one individual navigating a really complex system that is set up for profit, profit for corporations and CEOs, profit for shareholders. It is not set up to support ethics. It is not set up to support earth care and people care. So I have to make my choices while existing in this system. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. The co-housing episode brought back some memories and triggered some current thoughts. My second home in summers when I was growing up was just outside Woodstock, New York, and we hobnobbed with the hippies there, many of whom lived in communes. When I was in college, I lived in two different houses that could be classified as co-housing communities. One was lovingly named Roach Haven, and the communal phone was listed in the phone book as Haven, Roach. Fast forward to life currently, I have been giving thought about the fact that I hardly know any of my neighbors now. I've been inside only one home in my neighborhood in the 19 years I've lived here, except for helping a lady who was having a health emergency, and that was 18 years ago and she long ago passed away. It is so isolating. I chalked it up to my being a Yankee and Deep Dixie, but that TED Talk made me realize it isn't just here. It's a much broader issue. I've also been studying Buddhism, and one of their tenets is, in order to lessen one's suffering, focus on caring for others. Be a bodhisattva, one who is compassionate to lessen others' suffering. That has led to my meditating on, to whom can I have compassion? Of course, my wife and adult kids top the list, and I do that the best I can. But beyond that, who? Perhaps it's the customers who come into the dry cleaners I work at on Saturday morning. It's the callers looking for help at the volunteer position I have. 
But with all those, I have no possibility of a real relationship. It's all superficial, fleeting contact. But I know I need to reach out more to my neighbors. I have only a couple of people in my town that I know reasonably well, but none of them would I categorize as a close friend. I guess I haven't put enough energy into reaching out to others. But rather than self-flagellate, how do I remedy that? And at the age of 71, how do I develop friendships that have meaning? And, just as I was typing that, I got a call from an old friend from college and we spent two hours talking and laughing. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record or text us a message at 202-999-3991 or send an email to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks first to the listener for those comments. I have one quick thought in response that I definitely don't want to be misunderstood as a disagreement. I don't think that person said anything wrong. I don't disagree. But they did say one thing that I think highlighted the tragedy of social problems. The ubiquity of single-family homes is a structural social issue, not the result of a hundred million individual choices being made. And the result is communities across the country and beyond that are just like the listener described, filled with individuals and families who barely know their neighbors and struggle to connect with them even if they try. And so on one hand, we might know that the only real solution is going to be a systemic one, where housing is built and owned with a fundamentally different long-term plan in mind. But on the other, we don't yet live in that reality, and so people are left to make individual choices about how best to live, given the reality we currently have. And so when the listener said, quote, but I know I need to reach out more to my neighbors, I guess I haven't put enough energy into reaching out to others. It broke my heart in two different directions at once, because in our reality, that's kind of true. We sort of do just have to put in the work to have any chance of building meaningful friendships, but we shouldn't have to. I mean, Building a friendship always takes work, but finding people you'd consider putting that work into should be easy. It shouldn't be a matter of willpower and determination. That's almost always a recipe for failure. As we heard in that show, even people who grow up in tight communities and carry those values with them can often fail to foster connections no matter how hard they try. But to try my best to answer their ultimate question about how to remedy this problem and develop meaningful friendships, I would say this, it's almost never going to be enough to simply put in more work because it's not just that effort is missing. The dynamics are wrong. Friendships develop slowly, usually starting with lots of casual encounters with enough casual conversations that allow you to both realize that you have enough in common to build on and then go from there. So the biggest impact change you can make isn't just putting in more effort. It's putting yourself in more places more consistently where repeated casual encounters with other people can take place. That's why co-housing is such a good mechanism for fostering community. Repeated casual encounters are abundant, and it's from there that deeper friendships can grow. But you know, lacking the ability to pack up and move to or build a co-housing community for yourself, finding some sort of social club or league related to literally anything you're interested in is basically the best most of us are going to find right now. 
they create a place where frequent, casual encounters with the same people can take place over and over again. So, in the unjust reality where our built environment has created the inhumane dynamic of making us work for friendships, I think that clubs and the like are sort of the work smarter, not harder version of cultivating friendships. Of course, the smartest way to work is live in tight-knit communities where you see people around all the time, but we don't live in that world yet. Now, I mean, there's no harm in trying to strike up friendships with your neighbors, but as we've heard, your mileage may vary. Now, on today's topic, I also have some thoughts. The issue of people using the phrase, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, as a sort of carte blanche to indulge whatever selfish desires they have, regardless of their impact, reminded me of something. The first through line is that in order to take that phrase and use it as a defense for selfishness and a disregard for the impacts of consumption, you must first wildly misinterpret it. Its intended purpose is to grant grace to all of us, but particularly the poor, who cannot consume according to a perfect ethical standard, even if we try to. And the second through line is humans' seemingly insatiable desire to find ethical loopholes to allow them to act selfishly. I think there's a tension inside nearly all people between wanting to fulfill our selfish desires and wanting to be good members of society and not cause harm to others. However, that second part is open to so much interpretation, that's where all the flimsy ethical loopholes flourish. Now, it's generally thought of as sort of pretty solid ethical grounds to say that people shouldn't be overly selfish and should care for others. Standard stuff. Uh, In fact, as we heard from the voicemail today, it's literally good for our own health and well-being to focus on caring for others. But the trick is that if you can convince a person that being selfish isn't in contrast with helping others and sort of fostering a healthy society, then you will get a whole lot of signups to your new philosophy. The problem is those ideas always end up being built on sand. They're nonsense every time. One example is from a couple of years ago when probably a relatively small group of Christians started preaching that empathy was a sin, that being empathetic and deeply understanding where people are coming from can be a bad thing. But of course, they started by wrongly defining the concept of empathy, thereby setting up a straw man argument that they could easily knock down. So one of them said, quote, empathy is the sort of thing that you've got someone drowning or they're in quicksand and they're sinking. And what empathy wants to do is jump into the quicksand with them, both feet. And it feels like that's going to be more loving because they're going to feel like, I'm glad that you're here with me in the quicksand. Problem is, you're both now sinking. End quote. Now, to me, that's pretty absurd on its face. It makes a little bit more sense if you understand that quicksand in that example is a metaphor for not condemning homosexuality as going against God's will. But even then, it's an extremely warped and weak argument. But by effectively redefining empathy, they got a bunch of people on board with the idea that empathy, something fundamental to caring for others, is bad. 
The next example is from the Queen of the Craft herself, the godmother of libertarianism, Anne Rand, was a big fan of selfishness. And if you think I'm being unfair in that characterization, this tiny excerpt I'm going to read from her is from her collection of essays titled The Virtue of Selfishness. Uh, But rather than simply extol the evident virtues of selfishness, she follows the same pattern of creating a straw man argument based on a wrong definition of a concept that she's arguing against. In her case, the opposite of selfishness, altruism. Anne Rand writes, quote, Altruism declares that any action taken for the benefit of others is good, and any action taken for one's own benefit is evil. End quote. Again, this is absurd on its face. Altruism does generally say that actions for the benefit of others is good, but the inverse being evil is nonsense. I mean, actions taken for one's own benefit might be described as not altruistic, but it doesn't have to be the other extreme and declared evil. That's ridiculous. Obviously, everyone alive must take actions that are in their own self-interest, and no one would call that evil. But this little bit of absurdity is foundational to the argument behind libertarianism. It's a large political and social movement that adheres to the idea that if everyone acted only in their own self-interest, it would bring about the best outcomes. And that's the key. Those people who follow the selfish ideology of libertarianism or adhere to the idea that the free hand of the market should be left to solve all of our problems for us only follow those ideas because they've been convinced that they are moral and good for society. Their arguments built on sand and wildly incorrect definitions of words or phrases, but it's the through line of people being misled into immoral behavior by the promise that it is actually moral and good, or or at least that it doesn't matter either way. That gives me some amount of hope. You know, all of us, as I said, have selfishness within us, and nearly all of us have a desire to not act in a way that's actively detrimental to society and other people, which means that no one is completely lost or completely selfish or acting out of evil or some such. For the most part, people act in ways that they can justify to themselves as ethical. And if they stuck with more traditional ethics, you know, in short, care about other people, they'd be pretty all right. It's only when they're misled by nonsense philosophies that offer a sort of snake oil ethics that things go wrong, you know? How to be totally selfish and totally ethical at the same time with this one weird trick. And in reality, that's kind of what our entire economic system is built on. We looked at it today from the consumer side, but I think it may be worth looking again from the business side of the equation to see how this pattern of nonsense moral ethics became the foundation of the corporate culture that effectively runs the world. But that'll have to wait for another day. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave us a voicemail or text message at 202-999-3991, or you can email me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWindy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. 
Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes, all through your regular podcast player. And you can join the discussion on our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show, from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.